This is the EPLOG audio experience. You are listening to the Artist Podcast with me, Suchita. Stay tuned. Would you feel like living in a town where there is Shakespeare parked in every corner staring at you? And how would it feel to be surrounded by actors who only play Shakespeare and his characters all the time? Dr. Darren Freebury Jones is lecturer in Shakespeare studies at the Shakespeare's birthplace in Stratford-upon-Avon. He's the author of multiple books, all having a relation with Shakespeare. In this fun chat, we talk about not just the 400-year-plus legacy of Shakespeare, but also a strong influence of his work that keeps inspiring filmmakers and artists across the globe. And why? What makes Shakespeare this genius? His deep understanding of humanity mind and human condition or his belief in something beyond what we see to be or not to be is that the question for you or as Darren puts it let it be hi Darren welcome to our podcast the artist and thank you for being here and thank you for being here talking about one of the most important and influential writers of centuries, Shakespeare. And thank you so much, uh, because also you live and you're a lecturer in the birth and death place of Shakespeare. And if I'm pronouncing it right, it's Stratford-upon-Avon. And it is, I mean, I feel... Just a bit of goosebumps thinking that you are in the same place <laughs> as Shakespeare. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure and privilege. Tell me, Darren, how do you feel when people ask you that you are living in the place where Shakespeare was born and where he died? How does how does that place feel? Because he's such a influential figure since 400 plus years. Oh, yeah. Well... I'm still as giddy as a schoolboy, really, um, because I, I'm I'm from a part of the United Kingdom called Wales, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a couple of hours away from Stratford-upon-Avon. And I remember being a, a, a schoolboy, <clears throat> and I probably took the, the steep and thorny path, shall we say, to becoming a lecturer in Shakespeare studies, because my high school was actually voted the second worst school in Wales, which everyone found very disappointing because we were mm. actually in with a chance of winning something. Mm. And I remember my, my first encounter with Shakespeare was probably hearing Sonnet 18, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day? Mm. And I, I loved literature, loved history, loved drama, and I, I took it upon myself to to learn that sonnet. And mm. it was that that school, second worst school in Wales, that I also encountered Julius Caesar and was just enraptured by that story of deceit, conspiracy, and so forth. Mm. And I continued my my studies and went to university in Wales. And then a couple of years after graduating, uh, there was a job advert 
Uh, mm. Lecturer in Shakespeare Studies at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford-upon-Avon. Now, I had lived and worked in Wales all of my life. So when I got that role and came to Stratford, it really did feel like a, a brave new world. And Stratford-upon-Avon, it's just the most amazing place. It's quite a small market town mm. with a fairly small population. But if you're a Shakespeare lover, it's yeah. like being a kid in a sweet shop. Everywhere you like, there is Shakespeare. <laughs> There's a Shakespeare statue on every corner. He's monumentalized, revivified in statue form. There's a cafe called The Food of Love. The cab service is called Othello Taxis. You've got the Royal Shakespeare Theatre there, and there's a pub uh, near the uh, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre called the Black Swan, mm. which is affectionately known as the Dirty Duck. So if you go there in the evenings, you can mm. be able to converse with actors who have just been acting in Shakespeare plays. You get yeah. a little touch of Shakespeare in the night. So it, it never gets old for me. I yeah. love working in Stratford-upon-Avon. It's the most incredible place and you meet people from all over the world. So I get to engage wow. with groups from Germany, the, the States, you, know, you, you name it, uh, as well as schools in the United Kingdom. So mm. a fabulous place. So I, wow. I, I love being asked, how does wow. it feel being in Stratford-upon-Avon? It, it feels wonderful. <laughs> yeah, lovely, lovely. It is such a monumental place because everywhere you look, Shakespeare is looking at you right back, you know, in different uh, <laughs> faces. And uh, it's. Uh, I think it can get a bit, uh, like I'm saying, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. But when you say Shakespeare studies, of course, a lot more to dig when it comes to language, vocabulary, his innovation in words, phrases, idioms, you know, how he invented in language that we perhaps use at times today. But when you're saying studying Shakespeare, what exactly are you pointing at? So here in the United Kingdom, Shakespeare is very much a big part of the curriculum. So you'll meet mm. Shakespeare at quite a young age and the age of around 15, you'll do mm. exam on mm. Shakespeare. And if you carry on your studies uh, and choose to English literature, you're quite likely to continuing, uh, continue studying Shakespeare there. So I engage with a lot of groups who are studying Shakespeare from a young age to teenagers in the mm. United Kingdom. Mm. I also teach a lot of university students from all over the world. So they're, they're choosing to do Shakespeare oftentimes, as well as drama students. I also teach leisure learners, which is really lovely. So you've got these courses and, and You've got some people who, you know, they're, they're quite elderly. You know, they, they are voluntarily coming to Stratford-upon-Avon to discuss Shakespeare. Mm. So Shakespeare, yes, he's part of the curriculum. And by necessity for a lot of schools, you do t uh, teach Shakespeare. But then an awful lot of people here choose to carry on their Shakespeare studies. And that's something I love, actually, is teaching such a broad range people from such different backgrounds, different cultures, different perspectives. It's just a, an ongoing conversation about Shakespeare, which I, I really love. So is it what he has written? Is it the understanding of what he has written? Or is it the understanding of his structure, his plots, or his stories? What is it that folk, when you, when you say 
teaching Shakespeare? What is it that yeah. you teach? Which 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 uh, parts do people want yeah. to know more? A phrase from the play Antony and Cleopatra springs to mind, infinite variety. Mm. So with a lot of the school groups, they'll be studying a specific text. So mm. I might be teaching Othello, King Lear, Hamlet, Twelfth Night, for instance. Some of our groups want talks specifically on, tra- on a genre, so tragedy, comedy, mm. for instance. Mm. And with our university groups, uh, as well as our leisure learners, they can be quite bespoke. So I could be lecturing on Shakespeare's language one minute, uh, mm. Shakespeare on screen another minute, uh, Shakespeare's contemporary playwrights. Mm. So it really goes to show just how broad a subject Shakespeare is. And, and this is something I, I learned that I do often still feel like a schoolboy because I, I'm continually learning and hoping to enhance the knowledge of, of people I'm lecturing to. Mm-hmm. So Shakespeare's works stand almost like has become a template when you talk about Romeo and Juliet or when you talk about Othello or Macbeth that adapted and readapted multiple times when it comes to films as much as anything else. Why is it that there is this obsession with a continuous obsession with uh, I would say tragedy, tragedy more than anything else, because Othello, Macbeth, they've been adapted and readapted in Hamlet. People just don't stop. And they're coming from different eras, from different countries, from different worlds. But their perspective, it's their perspective that they pick up from Shakespeare and put it out there. So what is that connectivity you feel that? filmmakers and authors have with Shakespeare, who's like 400 years plus now. Yes, yes. You're still going pretty strong, isn't he? <laughs> I think, I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of ways uh, I could approach that question. But I, I think for me, it's quite important to remember that Shakespeare is very much a man of the theatre. He's an actor as well as a playwright. And yes. plays during his lifetime weren't seen as works of art in quite the same way as poetry, such mm-hmm. as Shakespeare's sonnets were. So this is fundamentally a business operation designed to entertain and engage audiences. And Shakespeare is a master storyteller. Mm-hmm. He's living in a time when it's not about telling new stories necessarily. It's mm-hmm. about telling existing stories in innovative ways. And you have a look at what sort of competition there was for Shakespeare's plays, such as Othello, King Lear, Hamlet, for instance. What might you do if you were living in London 400 years ago rather than go to the theatre? Well, for a penny, for a loaf of bread, you could go and watch someone getting hanged or someone getting beheaded. Or you could go to the cruel blood sport, bear baiting, where you'd watch a bear getting attacked by a pack of dogs. Sometimes they didn't use a bear, they used a bull. And we know on a couple of occasions they didn't use a bear, they didn't Mm. use a bull. They Mm. strapped a chimpanzee to a horse's saddle, and audiences found this thoroughly entertaining. So I think Shakespeare's very much got a keen commercial eye, and in some respects, I don't think audiences have necessarily changed that mm. much. We're, we're still seeking to be entertained by mm. scenes, for instance, Shakespeare taking advantage of prize-winning swordsmen in his company. There's always that morose delectation, that, that kind of obsession with the undiscovered country. What is there after mm. death? 
And I'm very much, I love the comedies, I love the histories. I'm very much a, a tragedies kind of guy myself because I think for me, there's a certain profundity to the themes that Shakespeare explores in his tragedies. Where yes. He's exploring some of the big philosophical questions yes. that people have been asking for centuries and yes. are still relevant and applicable to us today as audience members. Shakespeare writing for incredibly diverse audiences, foreign ambassadors, butchers, tailors, leather workers, wow. thieves, prostitutes. Yeah. So it needs to be applicable in terms of the topics and themes he's exploring. And a lot yeah. of his plays hold a mirror up to his contemporary English society. But I feel it's a distorted mirror because a lot of his tragedies are globetrotting adventures yes. as well. One yes. third of his plays that's in Italy, for instance. So I think that's in part why Shakespeare continues to resonate with filmmakers, with writers, with creatives, because he was an incredibly creative soul himself. Yes, yes, wonderful. That's wonderful. Darren, you were talking about the world in which Shakespeare was living 400 years ago, the Elizabethan world. But there is a mention of often most of his plays, especially the tragedies, mention of supernatural elements, mention of witches, something that I living in India, I personally have a strong belief that it does exist, the parallel reality, the supernatural reality, the witches reality exist. And if you come to India, you will see, and if you go in interiors of India, you will see people calling the witches. Uh, there's a way to call the witches or they feel that if you are have a certain kind of madness that comes inside you it's because a certain witch has gone inside you. Now, these these elements and these things are something that Shakespeare wrote in his place. Do you think that at that point, the witches and supernatural elements were something that were prominent or was it something that was concocted or created by Shakespeare? So fascinating, isn't it? The, the supernatural, again, I was talking about a, a sort of curiosity about death, you know, yes. curiosity about the supernatural, that pervades so many different cultures. And, yeah. and it's been prevalent through very different time periods. And first off, just to, to tie in with what I was saying about Shakespeare as a commercial dramatist, the supernatural is entertaining for audiences. People still enjoy the horror movie genre today, for instance. So there are around 60 surviving plays of the period featuring ghosts. And 10% of them are by Shakespeare. So Shakespeare knows that his audiences like seeing ghosts on stage. And he can take advantage of special effects when he's putting supernatural figures on stage, mm -hmm. such as fireworks or thunder sheets to, to simulate a storm, mm. for instance. Mm. Now, curiously, during Shakespeare's time, audiences shouldn't have believed in ghosts. These were Protestant audiences, and that idea of purgatory was explicitly denied in the Protestant religion. But there seems to have still been that fascination, that curiosity, and audience members seem to have left their scepticism at the theatre door. And ghost as well gives Shakespeare a great opportunity, I think, to explore the idea of theatrical illusion. 
Shakespeare's mm. play is very metatheatrical, very winky-winky, nudgy-nudgy, likes to draw attention to his plays as pieces of theatre. Now, when it comes to witches, there certainly was a firm belief in witchcraft during the time. We mm. spoke about the Elizabethan period. Yes. But in 1603, King James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England. And he also becomes Shakespeare's company's patron. Now, King James was obsessed with the idea of the supernatural. He wrote mm. a book on it called Daemonology, published in 1597. And he experienced some bad weather sailing from Denmark to Scotland in 1589, which he blamed on witches. Around oh. 70 people were implicated in what is known as the Berwick Witch Trials. So because of King James's obsession with witchcraft, a lot of people, a lot of innocent people, we should think, lost their lives. So Shakespeare, again, he's holding a mirror up to society when he's betraying the weird sisters in Macbeth, for instance. He's exploring yeah. what's topical, what's resonating with audiences at the time. So I think there was a firm belief in the supernatural during the period, but there was also something of a tension between that idea of fate and providence and supernatural forces having a say in day-to-day -day life, as well as a, a play's events. And also this idea of free will, this idea of humans as the paragon of animals. And this is something we see in Shakespeare's plays so frequently, a tension between the supernatural and between human actions that can have devastating consequences in the tragedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lovely. As you mentioned, the audience has not changed, which I think, of course, you mean that the emotions have remained the same. The emotions, we are still the same people that we were 400 years ago as human species, despite AI, despite all forms of innovation coming, the basic universal emotions that Shakespeare touched, the themes that he chose of power and death and free will and fate, all of it is relevant now, and it's going to be relevant for years to come. Well, this is the interesting thing with Shakespeare is he, he's often exploring historical processes, isn't mm -hmm. he? You think of his, his history plays, for instance, which were incredibly popular. And I think if Shakespeare's plays teach us anything, it's that historical processes recur, that we see similar events. So, we often get asked sometimes, you know, what is the relevance of Shakespeare today when you put on the news? How is this 400-year-old uh, dead playwright still relevant? And I remember in recent times, we had the Prime Minister here in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, and other members of his party were, were turning away from him and writing letters of no confidence. And I saw a production of Richard III in Stratford-upon-Avon that evening. And there was a speech when Richard is deserted by all of his friends. And it goes, he hath no friends, but who are friends for fear, which in his greatest need will shrink from him. And I mm -hmm. thought, my goodness, you know, if, if you're going to ask that question, mm -hmm. how is Shakespeare still relevant today? Mm -hmm. That speech really resonated with what was hitting the news mm -hmm. on that very evening I was sitting mm -hmm. in the theatre. Mm -hmm. Tell, lovely. Tell me, Darren, in terms of that at that time, 400 years ago, there was a lot of innovation. I mean, we, I think, 
must be following Shakespeare to the T because a lot of innovation happened not just in language, but also in the structure and the elements and the plots. So uh, when we talk about writing now, we say that you need to go and do a writing course. You need to do a script writing course. Um, But these guys were the innovators. They did not do anything. They learned on the job. They created on the job and they left a legacy that we are still following to the T. They created such rich characters uh, like Shakespeare, of course, created the most amazing characters. Of course, he did not go around learning screenwriting. So what was at that point did you ever come across in your teaching or studying that? How did these, how did Shakespeare absorb to create? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And that, that's actually something that's at the forefront of my research interests is what inspired Shakespeare. And I think it's incredibly important to emphasize that Shakespeare is mm. an actor. He has got that first-hand practical knowledge because mm. he is accustomed to performing not only in his own plays, mm. but also the plays of other writers. And if we have a look at Shakespeare's early works, mm. in terms of their language, he certainly was innovative. But at times, they almost read like patchworks of phrases that you will find in the works of other dramatists, such as Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd, George mm. Peel, for instance. Now, as an actor, Shakespeare needed an incredibly capacious memory. You were having to fit so many lines. You've only got a few weeks to rehearse, we think. So many lines from different plays, mm. and you're potentially performing six days a week. And I always remember there's the moment in Hamlet when the travelling players turn up, mm. and Hamlet is able to remember a 13-line speech with good accents and yeah. good discretion, despite having home, having only heard the speech once. And I think Shakespeare's skills of memorization probably quite similar. So he's got all of these, these lines, these different conventions and tropes buzzing around in his yeah. head. And he's yeah. also got first-hand experience of the strengths, limitations of the stage. And I think with Shakespeare, you, you do get a sense of him as a man of the theatre, because he helps his actors out, more so than is the case with some other dramatists of the period. So we often find quite pointy lines in Shakespeare where he incorporates stage directions in his dialogue. Probably the most famous example would be Romeo and Juliet, Romeo looking up at Juliet in her window and saying, see how she leans her cheek upon her hand. What a beautiful line. Mm. But it's also... It's a stage direction for the boy playing Juliet to lean his cheek upon his hand. And I think for Shakespeare, he's got an actually ear. And mm. a lot of writers, as we might today, write about seeing a play. But for Shakespeare, theatre seems to have been a primarily aural experience. He often writes about hearing a play. So playwriting, quite different to, say, screenwriting today. Yes. You, you, would, you would certainly be more informed than me in terms of screenwriting. But essentially, a, a, a playwright will, will write his play, and you've got what are known as his foul papers. And then the playwright would often have to either transcribe that play himself or get a professional scribe 
to copy it out. Mm. And then that play gets copied out again to become a prompt book. So you've got mm. the bookkeeper who's orchestrating things during mm. a performance. And the actors would be given cue scripts. So they've only got their own lines mm. and their cues. So just a, a, a few words from the preceding speech. So very different to putting on a Shakespeare play with professional theatres or with film companies today, I think. It it must have felt like quite a seats-at-the-pants seats kind of affair, quite, quite spontaneous. When you've only got a few weeks to mm. rehearse, you mm. haven't got an opportunity to read the whole script yourself and, and think of a character through line, for instance, with, with, with modern parlance. So mm. quite a different experience. Mm. And I think before Shakespeare came on the scene, there was a little bit more of an extempore approach to playwriting. Mm. So, for instance, you had a, a writer named Robert Wilson. And if you read his plays, mm. you kind of get a sense with certain scenes that, oh, this is this is just a gap here where the actors essentially improvise mm. on stage. Mm. I get the sense Shakespeare certainly appreciated the talents of his actors and, and his clowns, for instance. Mm. But he does place the warning in Hamlet's mouth, let those that play your clowns speak no more than mm. is set down for them. So I think for Shakespeare, it really was a case of words, words, words. Mm. <laughs> lovely, 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 Darren. Tell me, you said that we must not forget, and I think we forget this all the time, that Shakespeare was an actor. And uh, you said it's because of his acting, he was already enriched in terms of understanding and, you know, taking out human emotions or under understanding and absorbing human emotions. And that also made him put all these emotions on paper and, uh, you know, come out with, with these fantastic, rich characters. So tell me, Darren, in terms of in your studies and your teaching, how did Shakespeare work? Is there any any sort of a, a gist there that, okay, he just went, I, I read somewhere that when he started writing, he would not stop till he wrote the entire play or he was extremely passionate about uh, uh, the, the, the whole writing process and directing process. It was not easy to handle him at that point. So how did he direct and how did he write? What was he as a person? I, I think... Shakespeare is, as an actor in his own plays, one, he's accustomed to inhabiting various different roles. So various different characters, uh, various different backgrounds, uh, articulating very different emotions. And he would also be involved in that rehearsal process, acting in his own plays. So mm. we're, we're not sure of any part Shakespeare took for certain uh, but we think, for instance, he played the old man, Adam, in As mm. You Like It. There's traditions surrounding that. And Adam mm. is a a fairly small but very interesting character who serves a structural purpose, I think, where mm. he assists Orlando, the, the protagonist of the play. Uh, Shakespeare's also believed to have played the ghost of Hamlet's father. So that's a very important role in terms of the structure of that play. It's, yes. well, it's the very stimulus for revenge, the structural fulcrum, isn't it? The, yes. the ghost of Hamlet's father. And it's often, uh, it has been said that Shakespeare, there was a contemporary named John Davis of Hereford, who said that Shakespeare played kingly parts in sport. So he might very well have played many of the kings, many of the 
the royal figures in his own plays. So he is there to help guide and indeed learn from other members of his company. But I think that the one thing that really stands out to me in terms of Shakespeare's approach to character is they feel very human to us now because I think there are often heaps of contradictions. So what I find is that even his darkest villains often have redeeming characteristics Mm. and his heroes often have some questionable characteristics Mm. and flaws. And I think a, a great case study in Shakespeare's approach to character would be the role of Iago in Othello. Yes. Arguably Shakespeare's most delicious villain. And students often say to me, what do you think is Iago's motivation? Why does he do what he does? Why does he enmesh everyone in his web? Why does he want to ensure Othello's downfall? Now, Shakespeare had a very easy answer to that in his source material, an Italian uh, work by a writer named Giraldi Cintio called Hecatomathy. So in that work, the Iago character, the ensign, he loves Desdemona. She spurns his advances. He wants revenge. Now, Shakespeare instead gives us a whole plurality of potential motivations for Iago. Is it a case that his wife, Amelia, has slept with Othello? Is he simply jealous of Michael Cassio? Does he potentially have some kind of desire for Othello? Is Mm. he a racist? Is he just a misanthropist? So for me, I think one thing that's really stood out in my teaching is that Shakespeare loves raising questions, Mm. but he very rarely provides firm answers on anything. And I think it's the interpretive flexibility of Shakespeare's works, that's why they continue to be read, performed, studied, and that's why we're still trying to pluck out the heart of the mystery of so many of Shakespeare's plays. Mm-hmm. Yes. Tell me about the innovation in language, Darren. Shakespeare innovated words and phrases that we use now as well. It was his innovation, a lot of contribution in terms of language. What is it that and how did he sort of innovate and why do we accept that? And do you think we would have accepted it was somebody else who had innovated and used, would have? Would we have even used those words, what Shakespeare did? Yeah, well, that's, that's a fascinating point because I think it was a very innovative time Mm-hmm. And if we're thinking of language, it's been estimated that, that around 8,000 new words entered the English language when Shakespeare wow. was writing. Wow. And it's also been estimated that Shakespeare contributed around 1,700 to 3,000 words wow. to the English language. Now, surprisingly, it's, it's pretty much been worked out that Shakespeare's vocabulary wasn't that vast in comparison to other playwrights. So mm-hmm. you make a, you had a really interesting question there. What if this another writer was innovating yeah. with language? Would it still form part of our modern day parlance? Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure because there's a lot of words that Shakespeare gets credited with inventing, and it turns out that he probably pinched them from pamphlets or some kind of source work. But the key thing to remember is that Shakespeare popularized those words. They're still used today Mm. because 
his his works are so famous and continue to be read and mm. studied. Mm. So I think I think Shakespeare was a very innovative playwright, but so were various other playwrights of the period. I think I think Shakespeare does something very clever when it comes to language. Bearing in mind that the first official dictionary isn't dated until. 1755, I think it is, Samuel Johnson's dictionary. Shakespeare will take a well-known word and he'll often adapt it. So he'll put an un prefix before it, for instance. So we might ask ourselves, if writers are creating so many new words, how did audiences even understand what the roles on stage were saying? Yeah. But there's a sense of familiarity. So you put an un prefix for a word it becomes fairly undifficult to work out what that new word means, I think. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, Darren, that there were other playwrights as well at that point, many other playwrights, which whom we do not even know. Like, their name has not travelled 400 years later. That's a great question, and that's something that I'm particularly interested in, is... Mm. Shakespeare's relationship with other playwrights of the period. Mm. And Shakespeare was certainly seen as a wonderful dramatist uh, during his lifetime and and in the years later, as we see in the publication of the first folio in 1623, this posthumous tribute to Shakespeare. But what particularly interests me is how Shakespeare was inspired by other writers. Mm. And there are so many tremendous dramatists, such as Thomas Kidd, for instance, author of the Spanish tragedy, potentially author of the Lost Hamlet play, uh, without whom we we probably wouldn't have plays like Shakespeare's Hamlet and possibly King Lear. Christopher Marlowe, for instance, uh, a really tremendous dramatist dealing in the supernatural in plays like Dr. Faustus or matters of global conquest such as Tamburlaine. But I think over the years, it's, it's quite interesting when you have a look at more modern perspectives on dramatists of the period. So in the Restoration period, there was a lot of emphasis on the likes of other writers such as Ben Johnson, uh, John Fletcher, for instance, who who were writing at around the same time during the Jacobean period as Shakespeare. But then we, we start to see a shift where I think there becomes more emphasis on Shakespeare's a poetic writer, uh, and we, we've kind of progressed to this bardolatrous stage now, where Shakespeare, I think, is frequently detached from the playwriting community in which he was writing. And as a result, a lot of these other great dramatists have fallen by the wayside. And I'm sure some of the names I've mentioned there, John Fletcher, Ben Johnson, Thomas Kidd, Christopher Marlowe, they might not be familiar to, to some of your listeners. But I would I would encourage listeners to check out the works of some of these yes. other dramatists yeah. because I think that can only enrich and broaden your appreciation of Shakespeare because you can see what was inspiring him, what was influencing him, yeah. and also where he turns away from what other playwrights are doing as well and what makes his works distinctive. Yeah, and it's also been said... Uh, as I was researching on the net, which I have been on Shakespeare, is that there was no Shakespeare. There was no Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, it's been said 
a person like Shakespeare never existed. <laughs> oh, well, I think there's, there's an awful lot of historical evidence for yeah. Shakespeare's existence as a, as a playwright uh, and, and a poet. But I think whenever anyone gets elevated to the kind of celebrity status that Shakespeare has, yeah. uh, it, it just becomes part and parcel that people try to, to knock that, that figure down, I think. And it proliferates a lot of wild and whirling theories to uh, paraphrase Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Okay. Lastly, tell me, Darren, to be or not to be? <laughs> Is that still the question? <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's a question I ask myself every day. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's such a wonderful Wonderful speech. When we're speaking about how Shakespeare resonates through time, Hamlet is a, uh, I believe he's one of your favourite characters, isn't he, Hamlet? Yes. So he might be your, your favourite Shakespeare play. Yes. Hamlet is is a wonderful character. He's, he's so fascinating because he is at once the most accessible character in the whole Shakespeare canon. He's got seven soliloquies. He, he, he stands alone on stage and, and offers us as audiences privileged insights into his mind. But he's also one of the most opaque characters. He, he's an absolute mystery, Hamlet. Why does he delay his revenge? Again, all sorts of theories behind behind the character of Hamlet. And yeah. I I think he's a bit miscast as the tragic revenger. I think he'd rather be playing the clown or maybe the chorus. Ophelia says. You are as good as a chorus, my lord. And with a lot of those speeches Hamlet has, it is a bit me, 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 isn't it? We get a lot of that pronoun, I, I, I. Now, to be or not to be, that really stands out to me, that speech, because Hamlet doesn't refer to himself in that speech. It's a meditation on so many things, but but partly a, a meditation on the undiscovered country. But it almost feels like a meditation that Shakespeare conceived that you can kind of extract from that play that still speaks to us today and, and will have spoken to people throughout the ages. It, it's it's a question we often ask ourselves to be or not to be. And, you know, how do we transition to let it be? So, yeah, <laughs> a very, very fitting quotation uh, to, to employ there, to be or not to be. Yeah. Or just <laughs> let it be. Yeah. Or just let me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. I love Hamlet so much. I feel I'm Hamlet, you know. Yeah. Yes. Lovely. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you for being on the podcast. This was such a lovely chat away from thinking, away from the techniques of things. This was just Shakespeare and this was so lovely. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I absolutely loved speaking to you. It's been so wonderful. So uh, very much looking forward to hearing the episodes and best of luck with everything. And do keep me in the loop with, with all of your exciting projects. I'd love to hear more. So I do not know if there is any writer for me who comes closer to Shakespeare, not just because of his multidimensional and amazing characters, but also how he thought about his acts and plot points and structuring. 
literally being the innovator of what we are following as a template. But also the part that, of course, there were so many other playwrights during that time. So why do we only talk Shakespeare? Why has only Shakespeare penetrated through these 400 years? It's like to be or not to be, or just let it be.